Welcome to First Up, it is Rapa, that's Wednesday the 28th of September. Coming up, Costco opens in Auckland this morning, there's already people lining up outside. Perhaps they are unaware it's also open on other days, but first up we'll be there. A cancer survivor has created New Zealand history, having her frozen ovaries implanted back to help her conceive. We're going to speak to the doctor who performed this incredible procedure and how well-intentioned bird lovers may be inadvertently killing our feathered friends. Well, we've noticed a lot of small passerine birds that are being found dead, and we think the reason for it is a lack of cleanliness around bird feeders. It's a bit like we wouldn't eat off the same plate that other people had eaten on for a week without it being washed. So welcome to First Up, I'm Nathan Rarere and it is Wednesday so we're going to begin this morning in Australia where I'm hoping that our friend Pam Corkery can please explain why Pauline Hanson is in the news again. Uh, kia ora Pam, why is she? Morena, because she's drawn attention to herself which is a familiar trick of hers. She posted about the Greens politician uh, Miriam Whakaui uh, that the Greens called this up yesterday, that she had put in a um, Twitter or something, uh, she said for the uh, MP to piss off back to Pakistan. Oh, lovely. Lovely. And Labour in the coalition, so they wanted, to, the Greens wanted a severe censoring for Hanson, but Labour in the coalition softened that to, um, they, they voted to remove Hanson's name and her comments from the motion. This happened last night, and they've called for a, a respectful debate by everyone. Immediately afterwards, they say this respectful debate, um, Hanson doubled down by saying she would take the MP to the airport. You know, she's, and then one of the Greens called her an absolute scumbag, which seems entirely fair. But, yeah. you know, Pauline Hanson, what a horrible human being. And they, they all let's sit around and have a have a, a lovely debate on this. It's not going to happen. It's, not, it's just no. ridiculous. It's absolutely yeah. ridiculous. That, that's basically just giving you the one and going, you just go for it. So I guess we'll get to hear more of those things in the in the coming weeks. Can't wait. Hey, tell me about this. The telecommunications company Optus, why, why has that been in the sights of the government? Oh, look, this is a cluster event, as we would say in another language. <laughs> Political pressure is growing now for the Optus boss, Kelly Bayer-Rosemarin, to resign over the massive data breach, which affects up to like 10 million people. Now, Ms. Bayer-Rosemarin, she said that it was a sophisticated attack, but it turns out it can probably be done by my 10-year-old nephew. It's quite a straightforward hack. So this happened last Thursday, and the revelations have worsened since then. People are freaking out that their passport, their bank accounts, their Medicare, driver's licenses, details, all in someone else's hands. So there's now panic to get new documentation. I mean, there's talk of you could get a new passport without having to pay for it. But the latest... <laughs> banner in the works is someone claiming to be the hacker has confessed 
to releasing the first instalment of 10,000 customers, full details, really full. He, she has also withdrawn demands that Optus pay a $1.55 million ransom, really, to prevent the release of more data. The hackers also apologised via the dark web, saying it's all getting too heavy. It would seem that the person freaked out after the FBI were called in. It's all getting too heavy. That's not the words of a super criminal. Hey, yes, but that's what he said. It's all just getting too heavy, man. Which now makes me think it actually is just some kid who's like, oh, I was just, I was just doing it. Hey, um, so there might what? So this new federal anti-corruption agency that um the government's putting together will, will they go after this person? When when does this federal anti-corruption and agency thing start? That sounds pretty cool. The fact. Well, it's. Yeah, it's mostly aimed at politicians, so I don't know if this hacker dude oh. will um, will become before them. So it becomes law today, and such a body, an anti-corruption commission, was a big part of Labor's election campaign. Now, the new commission will include laws to protect whistleblowers who raise alarm about corrupt politicians, public servants, as well as anyone outside government who induces a public official to engage in corrupt conduct. So, you know, there's heaps of them around. It's a good idea. It will have sweeping powers and can investigate scandals retrospectively. And that could include investigation into monies distributed to favoured electorates by the former Prime Minister. Oh. Hey, yeah. now, fans of the Courier shorts loved their weekend because there was a whole group of men running around in them playing AFL football in the final there, and Geelong beat the team that my auntie still refers to as Souths because she's a good Melbourne woman there, the, uh, the Sydney Swans. But the Brisbane Lions, it hasn't ended nicely for them. Why is the AFL going to investigate the coach? Well, it's he's shifted from Hawthorne to the Brisbane Lions, but the latest in this AFL scandal, and it's based in Hawthorne, is that one of three coaches identified so far as being actively racist towards Indigenous people. He's lawyered up big time. I mean, they've actually listed these top-shelf barristers and lawyers to represent him. Now, according to the families of three players, it was... Uh, ABC documentary, racist incidents took place between 2013 to 2015. The players were allegedly bullied. They removed First Nation players from their homes and relocated them elsewhere, telling them to choose between their careers and their families. Coaches allegedly coerced at least two players to remove their SIM cards from their phones and put in new ones to cut them off from their partners and focus them entirely on rugby. But the gravest accusation relates to the alleged intimidation tactics to separate couples at the earliest stages of pregnancy and parenthood Mm. and the alleged demand that one player should tell his partner to have an abortion. Oh, my goodness. AFL, by the way, not rugby. Yeah, yeah, AFL, you know... In each case, the players were young First Nation draftees. And, the, you know, the, they uh, this happens to kids in the other sport as well, where they do that, where they take them out and, they, they you know, they're paying them $1,000 a week while they're still at high school and they hook them on in. And um, then they go, oh, you've graduated. Sweet. Well, you can buy your way out of that for half a million or come and do all these things that we say. So it's, um, yes. The, the, the scary part of this is... 
most Indigenous commentators are saying that the outcome will change very little. I've been this road before. Mm, yeah. Mm, Pam, Pam, thank yeah. you very much for your time, my friend. Uh, it's good to catch up with you this year. Uh, Pam Corkery, who joins us out of Brisbane. It's 12 past five here at First Up on RNZ National with me, Nathan Rarere. In Japan, the state funeral of former Prime Minister Shinzo Abe has taken place in Tokyo. Mr Abe was assassinated at a campaign stop in July. The granting of a state funeral has has been controversial and it's usually reserved for members of Japan's royal family. The BBC's Mariko Oi has this report. Akie Abe, the widow of Japan's longest serving prime minister, carries his ashes to his state funeral. Four and a half thousand people attended to pay respect to Shinzo Abe, who was shot dead in July in a rare case of violent crime in the country. Among those attending today were the US Vice President Kamala Harris, India's Prime Minister Narendra Modi, of the United Kingdom of- and the UK's former Prime Minister Theresa May. Outside, a long queue of people also waited for hours to express their condolences. But just as when he was Prime Minister, Mr Abe's state funeral has divided opinions. I'm about to pay floral tribute to Mr. Abe because of his contribution to the country, but also to the way he was killed. I have nothing against spending that much money for the country, but the money can be spent on other things, like people who are suffering in Shizuoka, where a typhoon hit. No state funeral! Many protests took place throughout the day, questioning the legitimacy of a state funeral, which is usually only reserved for imperial family members. Others are unhappy about the £10 million price tag. Quite a change from an outpouring of grief and sadness shortly after his assassination. The state funeral is now over, but what's been dubbed as funeral diplomacy continues for the current Prime Minister, Fumio Kishida, who's taken the opportunity to hold dozens of meetings with the state leaders who've attended. Pushing ahead with the event has affected his popularity. Whether it was worth the cost and the surrounding controversy remains to be seen. That was Mariko Oi in Tokyo. It's coming up to a quarter past five. Call it that. You're listening to First Up here at RNZ National with me, Nathan Radity. So I am going to ask you as an audience now, please, can you just do something for me? Because I forgot to do it overnight and, and you know, I was driving Kinder. So apparently you, you would have seen this news that Jupiter is the, the nearest it's going to be to planet Earth unless you're alive again in 2233 or something like that. The year's probably wrong. It's okay. That's not the point of the story. Um, can you just go out and give me a review on it, if you can? So if, you, if apparently if you take binoculars, look look around northeast, and I think hopefully you can still see it. I, I've, I missed it. That's all I want to know. Or if I if it's, you know, because of our Earth rotation, it's not in the right place. If you saw it last night, just tell me what it was like, please. Can you let me know? Give me, give me a quick review. Like one of those reviews is if you're reviewing an Airbnb or a restaurant or something like that, you know. Saw, saw saw Jupiter and Moon's what view again? Uh, 2101, if you could do that. I see Felix Damaray, one of our reporters uh, from LDS, he got out of bed to do this and was gazing in amazement at Jupiter. Got a bonus shooting star. So there you go. That's a pretty tough review to beat. 2101, or you can email first up at rnz.co.nz to do it the old-fashioned way. Well, uh, protests have continued across Iran in the wake of the death of a Kurdish woman in the custody of the country's morality police. So joining us from Doha is our correspondent, Alex Beard. Morena, Alex. Morena. I, I, I gather these protests are still ongoing, are they? 
Yeah, and, and to be honest, it's it's hard to actually get an idea of exactly what's going on in Iran. What we know currently is that more than 40 people have been killed. Protests have basically spread to every single city and, and province within Iran. But the problem is that the Iranian authorities, their response to this has been to shut down the internet. So basically, we have very few ways of actually getting a clear picture out of Iran about what's happening. The Americans have on this though and have said that they're going to start loosening restrictions on American tech companies operating out of Iran. They're actually asking Starlink if they'll move their satellites over Iran and trying to get um, basically um, communications technology into Iran so that protesters can can have a voice because these are some of the largest um, protests that we've seen out of Iran in years and years. The largest indeed that we've seen that are centred around women's rights, the the, the, later, the, the the last round of protests that are around this size, uh, size were around uh, 2019 over fuel prices. And in, that, in those protests, more than 1,000 people were killed. But I think you're really seeing um, a huge protest movement continuing in Iran and, and the protests have been picking up overseas as well. And once we get a clearer idea of what's actually happening, it'll be interesting to see how these uh, play out. Okay, um, let's go to something uh, something else quite horrible. Actually, this um, another disaster on the Mediterranean involving refugees. Where, where were they? Well, where were they hoping to be heading at the time? Yeah, some pretty bleak news out of this region at the moment. Uh, basically, we had around one hundred and fifty people, uh, primarily refugees from Palestine and Syria, who had been living in Lebanon for a very long time and basically were fed up with the living conditions there. Uh, For instance, if you're a Palestinian refugee in Lebanon, you're actually barred from working in particular uh, industries. You can never become a Lebanese citizen. And basically 150 people packed themselves onto a boat, a pretty rickety boat, and were trying to make their way to to start new lives in Europe. Uh, But very soon into this journey, uh, the ship was just off the coast of a city in Syria called Tartus, and it sank We've had more than 94 people confirmed dead now. Uh, We were hearing from some of those who were on that boat, and some of them were floating at sea for 24 hours, clinging on to the hull. And I heard the story of one guy, actually, who said he spent 13 hours swimming to shore from that boat. So I think we're hearing these stories all the time, but really what's underpinning it is the pretty dreadful situation in which – over a million people are living in in Lebanon and other parts of the region uh, where they've been displaced from their homes. And in terms of their lives, there's not much that's looking up and you're, you're pushed to the point that you're looking to pay uh, smugglers to take you on a pretty perilous journey to Europe. So I think just another example of how hard it is in this world for refugees. Yeah, Alex, thank you very much for your time out of Doha. That's Alex Beard. Yeah, I mean, gosh, imagine that. If you know that that's a possibility of what can happen to you, and apparently that is a better option than where you live at the time. You're like, I'd rather take that and have my life end that way quickly than be stuck here forever. Uh, That's what they're looking at. I know sometimes it tries to be painted as if they're just, oh, they're just heading over to be on the dole and clog up the health service. They're not. That's how terrible things are. Awful, awful way to end. That was Alex Beard there in Doha.
It's 20 past five, I'm Nathan Rarity and you are listening to First Up here at RNZ National. Coming up on the show, Ian McLean of Birds New Zealand tells us the best way to feed birds this summer. And we speak to, this is really cool, the first ever surgeon in New Zealand to perform an operation where frozen ovaries are implanted back into cancer survivors. This week on Trade Me, if the Tutukaka Coast is on your list, money's no object. This week's property listing might be just for you. Also a convertible that couldn't be more 1967 if it tried. But first, having a doodle on the wall has just come within reach. First up, producer Jeremy Parkinson talks with Trade Me's Millie Sylvester about a fundraiser starring Sir Steve Hansen. Yeah, well this one is for the rugby lovers out there, so I guess we're talking to most of Aotearoa. And it's a very incredible charity piece, which is in support of youth mental health in New Zealand. And what better time for this to be auctioned off than Mental Health Awareness Week. So it is a doodle done with a Sharpie by none other than the former rugby union player and all black head coach, Sir Stephen Hansen. And this is part of, I guess, a wider charity fundraiser where they've given really prominent Kiwis a piece of paper and a Sharpie. And they've said, go ahead and, and do a doodle. And this auction comes from Nelson College. It's a non-profit social enterprise group who are looking to raise money as part of their school business studies. So this particular auction, I guess, if, if you're looking at the doodle, he's written a quote. I don't know if he's borrowed this quote or if it's one just from him, but he says, great leaders don't succeed because they're great. They succeed because they bring out greatness in others. It's signed and it's got a few little uh, stick figures around it as well. And the current bid on that one is $505, which is awesome to see. They're already raising a good whop of money there. And it's had close to 9,000 views. So a lot of interest in this one already, but there's still time to get your hands on it. You've got until Friday at 2.15pm to make your move. Now, two things I've noticed about the next auction or um, listing. Uh, this is for a property up in on the Tutukaka coast, just north of Whangarei. The first thing I notice is that there's a, a fence around the pool done correctly but what you will realize is that it's a pool on a cliff and beyond the pool is like water all the way to South America which isn't fenced by the way so this is an amazing property and it's not really about the house is it because the house isn't when you compare it to the view the house isn't much to write home about but this is an incredible property overlooking the Tutukaka coast and they want just sort of more than five and a half million for this so do look down the back of the sofa for change tell us about this coastal property yeah if if you're afraid of heights this one might not be for you because this is real this is living on the edge and it's a very unique property in in northland and as you said as far as the eye can see all you can see is just this expansive panoramic views of the ocean so it's set on basically 15 hectares it's a private estate and yeah it comes with its own peninsula so you know i guess it's got something for everyone if you just want to lounge around by the pool and get a tan that's for you it's got its own walking track secret coves diving apparently the crayfish are amazing you can swim from the beach or just really take in the breathtaking views so it, it's a four-bedroom home each with an ensuite and of course just beautiful windows just making the most of that incredible breathtaking view it, it is such an in- interesting property and to be honest so close to the edge of that cliff yeah it, it kind of makes you maybe a little bit nervous but hey if, if that's your kind of thing you, you should definitely check it out it's had a whole lot of views already, 23,000 page views. And yeah, close to $6 million is the asking price. So a real slice of paradise that might be your 
cup of tea, so go check it out. A car auction today. Now, Jaguars don't do much for me, and I think it might have had something to do with a teacher at school who had a very plain old Jag, And it's a, but this isn't a plain old Jag. It's one of the most considered one of the most beautiful cars in the history of car design. It is a Jaguar E-Type. It's a 1967 and it's convertible. Tell us about that one. This looks like something straight out of a James Bond movie. It is a beautiful primrose yellow convertible Jag and it's just not something that you see every day. It's completely ready to go and a very, very hard to find vehicle. Now the striking colour was apparently painted in the late 70s and then had a little touch-up job in 2017. And what What is amazing about this is this glorious roadster, which is located in Tamaki Makoto, has only had two owners in its lifetime. So you can imagine this has been a very, very loved and well cared for vehicle because you can tell by the fantastic condition that it's in. So, of course, the the original soft top's still there. It has been reupholstered in black leather to keep its fantastic condition. But gosh, driving around in this, I think you'll feel like you're in a 007 film for sure. So if you want a, a Jaguar convertible 1967 for summer, how much is it going to set you back? Yeah, I mean, you might be hoping that you're going to win this week's lotto because it's going to set you back $290,000. So if you were lucky enough to win the, the 26 mil from last week, maybe this could be your Sunday car. So not a cheap price tag on there, but a stunning, stunning car. I'll have five. Thank you. That was Trade Me's Millie Sylvester. Like sands through the hourglass, so are the days of our lives. This is the day of our life we call the 28th of September. Happy birthday uh, to uh, Mira Sorvino. She's 55 years old today. Janine Garofalo, 58. Loved her movies. And Bridget Bardot is 88. And also, a woman who I accidentally, I was standing next to uh, in, in an airport, and my wife was doing the eyes, you know, the, standing next to you. And I was looking, going, hey, look, look. Naomi Watts, 54. She's, she's very petite. Very mini. Uh, on this day in 1895, stand back everyone, the first ever auto race happened. It was organised by a newspaper so that they could write about it. The Chicago to Evanston race, organised by the Chicago Times Herald, six cars, 55 miles, the winner averaging seven miles per hour. Born to be wild. On this day in 1895. Uh, Also on this day in 1889, the first general conference on weights and measures defined the length of a metre. So here it is. The length of a metre is the distance between two lines on a standard bar of an alloy of platinum with 10% iridium measured at the melting point of ice. So there you go. I'm glad they just called it Meter. And on this day in 1981, Physical by Olivia Newton-John was released. The song was originally intended for Rod Stewart, but he went, nah. Then it was offered to Tina Turner. (laughs) That physical, I think, would be amazing. It was number one in Switzerland, Australia, New Zealand, Belgium and Canada. Um, It was listed as the number one of the top 100 songs of the 1980s. Come on. And also, Billboard's ranked physical the number one of the top 50 of songs top 50 sexiest songs of all time no everyone knows it's shut up your face by uh, joe dolce there you go it's 5 30 joining us now from our business team is mr anan zaki kia ora anan how are you Morena, very well, thank you. 
Tell me about this, the new tool which will help regional tourism organisations. What is this? Yeah, it's, uh, it's a new tool to help these organisations plan for growth. You know, obviously being a tough uh, couple of years uh, tourism-wise uh, in New Zealand, uh, especially our regions, uh, heavily reliant on tourism. Uh, there are 31 regional tourism organisations in New Zealand and the Ministry of Business, Innovation and Employment uh, and Data Ventures, they've developed uh, monthly estimates of unique local and visitor populations for each of these um, organisations. So they get to see a monthly snapshot of how visitor patterns, uh, including how things have changed uh, since the pandemic began. So uh, these uh, monthly unique population estimates, they can help these organisations coordinate activities in their regions uh, with the industry, stakeholders, uh, iwi and their communities. And it's quite interesting how they get the information. Um, The new data set draws information from uh, mobile phone data from the telcos. Uh, So everyone uh, in the region will be counted just once. There's no doubling up. Uh, They can also count domestic uh, visitors as well. And... uh, Perhaps uh, more importantly, the data set begins from January 2019, which MBC is uh, huge, hugely important because, of course, a certain uh, coronavirus was detected in yeah, New Zealand right. about a year later. Yeah. Um, and eventually, uh, the monthly estimates will be combined with other data like uh, monthly card spending to help understand what visitors are buying. But in the meantime, this this will help regions understand uh, I guess, any gaps in their tourism infrastructure. So it, it'll be a big help for these uh, organisations as they try and rebuild their local tourism economies. I can save them time. In the winter, they're buying coffee and in the summer, they're buying ice cream. I've seen tourists. <laughs> I've been one. I've, I've done that is what I've done. Hey, now, um, an interesting change here for Apple. Uh, the newest phone that they put out is not going to be made in China anymore. Where's it going to? Yeah, uh, Apple makes most of its phones in China, but uh, I guess it's a sign of the times with the rising tensions between Washington and Beijing and China's COVID restrictions, of course. But yes, uh, Apple says they'll make its new product, the iPhone 14, in India. Um, So by betting on India, it's... uh, it's also looking to increase its footprint in the country. Um, it's got about 4% market share in India. Uh, the company's been struggling to compete with uh, cheaper uh, South Korean and Chinese smartphones that dominate the Indian smartphone market. But uh, uh, I, I guess unfortunately for Indians, uh, it doesn't necessarily mean it'll be cheaper because of high import duties on different components. But look, earlier this month... Um, Analysts at, uh, excuse me, uh, analysts at uh, investment bank J.P. Morgan, they said that Apple um, is expected to move around five percent of iPhone production to India this year as it looks to diversify. And the report also predicted that a quarter of all iPhone production will be uh, in India by 2025. So it's a really interesting shift away that we're seeing, um, and perhaps I guess we'll be seeing more made in India uh, as countries move away. On there. Cheers. Thank you very much. I know. Uh, you can hear more from the business team this morning at 
10.27 on Morning Report. Let's go to your money report now. And your money markets have been very interesting the last few days. Whew, volatile. Here we go. New Zealand dollar buys the following things. 56.6 US cents. 87.6 Australian cents. 58.9 Euro cents. 52.6 British pence. 4.06 yuan and 81.98 Japanese Yen, it is 25 to 6. Now, with daylight savings, uh, time comes, of course, longer days and also the return of birdsong to our gardens. However, Birds New Zealand is concerned that a number of native birds are just dropping dead because of how well-intentioned people are feeding them. So I asked the Auckland Regional Representative, Ian McLeod, about what, what are the things that they've noticed? Oh, McLean, sorry, McLean. Uh, uh, what are the things that they've noticed? Well, we've noticed a lot of sort of small passerine birds that are being found dead and also lots of pictures of them on Facebook of, uh, of very unwell-looking birds. And we think the reason for it is basically a lack of cleanliness around bird feeders. So basically people are not uh, washing them as they should and there's a lack of hygiene. What, what is the best way, then, I guess, to clean it? Because I know a lot of people love, love the thought of feeding the birds and helping nature, but how do we know if it's clean? How do we know if it's dirty? And, and how should we clean them? Sure. Well, there's a... a couple of points. Firstly, with with sugar water feeders, they need to be f- cleaned absolutely every day and they need to be uh, cleaned with, with hot water. And um, it's a bit like, you know, we, we wouldn't eat off the same plate that other people had eaten on for a week without, without it being washed. So as you can imagine, uh, there's a huge concentration of birds around uh, a feeder and that just causes a mess and, um, you know, the likelihood of sort of diseases and microbes are being spread amongst the population is there. So we really have to clean them, that area. And also uh, we shouldn't use open uh, dishes to feed birds because basically the birds start pooing into their own food oh. within a couple of minutes and that can cause uh, things like salmonella poisoning. Oh, okay. So is salmonella, is that the main thing that you're seeing? That's one of the main um, problems, but there are other ones as well. The sort of Campobacter. There is also intestinal parasites, and there's also avian pox. And avian pox is a condition where birds get lesions on their feet, and it will eventually kill them. Oh, no. And, and you know, like I say, because yeah. a lot of people think, oh, I'm doing a great thing here, and you know, they, they love this idea, and you get more fascinated with, with birds the, the more that you see them there. So tell me this, are there, are there different foods that you can put out that will attract, say, native birds as compared to, I guess, what do they call them, exotic birds? That's right. Well, um, we tend to find that uh, if, if people feed uh, seeds and bread, it actually skews the biodiversity in favour of uh, introduced or problematic species. And there's quite a few um, studies being done here in Auckland that have proven that uh, it skews the biodiversity and it actually badly affects our native and endemic birds. So uh, one of the things we say to people is never feed birds bread. It's just absolute junk food for them. And if you go down to Western Springs, um, you'll notice that as soon as you get to the park. Problems, there's poo everywhere. It causes aggression. It only benefits certain species like feral pigeons, mullard ducks, feral geese. In your garden, it will bring in um, house sparrows and common miners. And these are all aggressive birds, which will force out your natives and your endemics. Right. So and, how, um, how, how do we keep keep the, the native birds happy? Because I've, I've only got so many space. I've only got so much space for a pudity tree. 
Yeah, that's right. So you basically need to, to plant more trees in your garden and it can be a sort of a layering of different plants from ground covers to sort of medium-sized shrubs and then to trees if you can actually put in trees in your garden. Uh, but another really good thing is to just have a bird bath and that's something that birds will enjoy using. When they use them, there's less aggression because one of the problems of bird feeders is the, all the aggression that comes around with it. People often think it's wonderful to see 40 Taho silveri around a feeder, but most of the time they're actually fighting each other to get to it. So yeah. um, plant, planting trees is a good thing, and also just feeding birds in absolute moderation right. and, and doing it properly. Oh, but it's so hard because you want to see them. And you know what I mean? It's so it's so that big, oh, if we just do that, then the bird will get close to me. I mean, obviously, you know, you don't get to hug it because they fly off. But you know what I mean? People want to be so close to it. So what you're saying is, though, it's best to just, just almost like try and do your best to provide some sort of little ecosystem for them to be in by planting trees in if you are able to where you live. That's, that's right. That's absolutely correct. So we want to do it in a natural way. And it also allows you to view birds that you might not necessarily see if you've got a feeder. So the birds I'm talking about are the insect-eating birds, like the rero rero, which is the grey warbler. And it's actually a quite a common bird, but there's so many people actually don't know what it is, and then they may have only heard it. Yes. Um, other birds, like fantails, which only eat insects, you can attract them just by having a compost bin in your garden and leaving it open, and they'll come and eat the insects, which is a very good thing. You know, they're good at controlling mosquitoes and things like that. You know, there's certain birds which we can easily encourage and we can view them in a, in a relaxed way. Fantastic. I, I have a question too. Now, Pukeko, I remember, you know, because I'm old, uh, I remember young, you know, you, you hardly ever got to see them. Now living in West Auckland where we have like a lot of native planting, my Lord, there's a lot of Pukeko yep. around. They seem to be very encouraged by if you give them food or chuck out bits of apple or what have you like that for them as well. Yes. What's your What's your advice? <laughs> On, on Pukeko? My advice is to not feed them at all. Yeah. Um, they're actually, although they're native, they're rather problematic. One of their favourite foods is ducklings, and they will actually also raid the nests of small passerine birds. So we have a problem with people feeding them. And, for example, there was a count done of Pukeko at Western Springs the other week, and there was 138 Pukeko wow. around a small lake. And that's completely unnatural. And one of the reasons for that is, is, of course, the bird feeding which happens there, which is just nuts, and also the fact that we have uh, lakes and wetlands that are surrounded by grass. And if you go to a natural wetland, and like a natural swamp, for example, on uh, Aotea Great Barrier Island, look, there's Pukeko there, but there's only about four or five. So uh, Pukeko are problematic, and we really need to stop feeding birds in public parks. Right. And we also need to plant up our wetlands. Yeah, so, I mean, that's just one example. Um, the other issue at the moment that we're having is feral pigeons. Back in the day, in the 1970s, when I was a child, you used to see feral pigeons at Britomart Car Park. Yeah. But now they're all over the city and they're everywhere. And they're one of the birds which in particular spread salmonella. And also they can do a lot of, they have to poo. <laughs> and there's a lot of that. So, you know, there's a lot of fouling of people's houses. I mean, the roofs and also um, streets and car parks. I mean, it's, we really need to think about how we're feeding birds, what particular birds we'd like to see, but also how we're doing it. Do we actually need to do it in the first place? 
Yeah, some good tips there. I don't really suppose it all makes sense, doesn't it? Change the water and just don't leave it out where they can soil it. Uh, that's Birds New Zealand's Ian McLean. It is 17 to 6. I'm Nathan Rarity. You're with First Up here on RNZ National. If you had a look at Jupiter last night, can you just message me on 2101? Was it as good as advertised? Was it pretty cool? Did you see some good? Were you even able to see it? Let me know. It's only because I was tardy and didn't do so. Still to come, Costco's 14,800 square metre store is finally open today. We'll be there live. Apparently there's people waiting there already. Uh, And we're going to speak to a doctor who has created New Zealand history by implanting a cancer survivor's frozen ovaries back into her body so that she can conceive. The professionals of Morning Reporter up after six. It's Guy and Espinar who's uh, with me today about uh, what's happening on the show. How are you, sir? Very well, thank you. The big story this morning, Pharmac finally moving to fund a couple of these drugs. One for anaphylaxis. Now that ah. is basically your shot. You know, your, your, yep. your, your kid, your teenager is allergic to nuts or whatever it is and goes into anaphylaxis yes. and you have one of those shots with you. Now, th- they've been calling for funding for this since 1997. It's the longest application period of any drug for Pharmac. They're finally moving on this. So, yep, look, I suppose it's better late than never, but there'll be some hard questions about why it's taken so long. So long. The other big drug uh, for SMA, spinal spinal muscular atrophy, uh, deadly muscle wasting disease, they're looking to fund that as well too. So we have Lisa Williams on from Pharmac and go through some of that stuff this morning. Uh, quite, quite a bit of politics on the show too. We've got Christopher Luxon, his Wednesday morning interview. Good poll for him last night showing that the centre-right could, could win, um, but also some doubt about his tax cut package. You see what's happened in Britain with their tax cut package. Can he yeah. do the same in in, uh, in New Zealand if he takes power? So we'll, we'll be uh, pressing him It'll on that too. It'll trickle down such a weird sort of a, you know, astrology yeah, to believe in, Yeah, the markets didn't it? like it which was weird. The markets <laughs> no. didn't like the tax cuts in Britain. So w- w- what would he do here? So we'll, we'll, we'll tackle him on that. Lots on Iran and Ukraine as well. Yeah. Wonderful. Thank you very much, Guy. Well, uh, Costco, where you can buy anything from food uh, to stuff for a funeral to furniture to fuel, is opening its first branch in Auckland this morning. Now, we don't want to just give the, the new business a free advertisement, uh, but this could prove significant for New Zealanders as it promises to disrupt the 20-decade the supermarket duopoly enjoyed by foodstuffs and Woolworths, probably Two decade one, I think. Uh, joining us outside Costco is we- in West Auckland's Westgate is our reporter, Mohammed Alfashat. Uh, Kia ora, Mohammed, how are you? Good morning. Kia ora, I'm well, thank you. Are there really people queuing up outside Costco? That's right. There's about 100 or so people outside Costco right now. They've uh, been lining up for a while, and some of them actually spent the night here. Are they not aware that it's open on other days? That do they think it's just open today, or they're, they're just they're just dead keen? You know, why are they showing up no, so early? Well, they're dead keen. I mean, it is the grand opening, and they want to be here first to skip the long queue. And you know, they've been waiting for a while for it to open, so it all makes sense. Okay. okay. Now, um, for those listening and tuning in, just remind us what sort of things does does Costco sell? Now, you have to remember that Costco is the second largest retailer in the world and sells pretty much anything you can think of, although it's not entirely clear whether the New Zealand branch will have the same selection as the U.S. Costco megastores. But of great interest to many New Zealanders will be the price of food, which has been sharply 
uh, increasing in the previous months. In the US, Costco stores also sell everything from engagement rings to coffins to car tires and everything else in between. <laughs> and But you've got to be a member though, right? So can you just explain to people how does membership yeah. work and, and what happens if someone shows up today without a membership? Yeah, look, this isn't something that we've really seen from New Zealand retailers, but that's right. If you want to shop at Costco, you need to buy a membership, and that costs $60 for an individual or $55 for a business. Quite a few people have already purchased their membership, though, um, as Costco has been selling fuel to motorists prior to today's grand opening. Um, so also one of the other things I understand too is that they've, you know, obviously you get a shop that opens up like this, it's quite a big employer. So have they, have they pulled in quite a few people and given them jobs? Yeah, yeah. So because this is a pretty huge operation, it's a $90 million, 14,000 square meter uh, store and it's expected to provide up to 350 full-time jobs with reports from the Ministry of Social Development yesterday that more than 40 unemployed Aucklanders have secured jobs at the megastore in warehousing and something called product demonstrator roles. Ooh, I like, I like the sound of that. Now, I understand, yeah. I think you, you're standing next to someone who has been lining right. up. Is that right? Is, is it Kyle or Carl that you've got there? Uh, Carl is with me now. He's been here all night. Uh, I'll pass him on to you now. Oh, okay, right. There we go. Action Radio, we're crossing over to Carl. Yeah, morning, Nathan. Oh, kia ora, Carl. So tell me this. You, now, you're, you've lined up overnight for this. Does this mean that you're an experienced Costco shopper in another nation? Not at all. No, I'm a Costco virgin. Oh. Yep. <laughs> so, so what was yeah. the thing that drew you to it in the first place and, and, and not even just drew you to it, made you think, I'm going to line up so I'm in there first? Oh, it's an interest, interesting story, really. Um, uh, a couple of years ago, um, my father-in-law and the family sat down together and said it would be a laugh to line up when Costco opened and see what they had to offer. And um, uh, it just happens to be that he pa- he passed away last year. And um, oh. we, we, we that, that deal that we made, we decided as a family to honour it. So we're here today to honour that promise to, to Dad. Yeah. Oh, that's beautiful. So mm. tell me this, when you get in there and have a look, you know, like one of the fun things is just to Google novelty big things that Costco has. What, what are you going to have a look <laughs> yeah. for? Oh, the Grim Reaper. <laughs> oh, that's, tell us about tell us about the yeah. Grim Reaper. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a, it's a giant animatronic uh, Halloween Grim Reaper, basically, with all the bells and whistles. And someone told me it's $300, which is pretty cheap. Um, the kids will love it. And isn't it something, it's like a couple of metres tall, isn't it? Yeah, t- yeah it is, yeah. It's <laughs> amazing. Hey, Carl, thank you. <laughs> thank you very much uh, for being with us here on First Up. Great to hear your voice too, and, and great to hear you following, uh, following through there for Dad as well. Yeah, uh, the Costco, they're at Westgate. If you are in the market for a giant Grim Reaper, that's where you'll need to go today. Well, a cancer survivor has successfully become the first New Zealand woman to have her frozen ovaries implanted back into her body. So 36-year-old Alana Scott underwent the procedure on Monday in the hope of conceiving a baby. Joining us now is the Wellington doctor who performed this amazing uh, procedure, gynaecologist and fertility specialist Dr Lee Searle. Uh, kia ora, doctor. Morena, Nathan. Can you tell me about this procedure because my mind boggles. How do you do this? <laughs> Sure. So um, prior to the cancer treatment um, that um, the patients have, um, we at Fertility Associates can offer um, freezing some of their ovarian tissue. So they have a small piece of the ovary 
for most of from their body, um, and this is normally in patients who we think that they're quite likely to go through menopause as a result of their um, cancer treatments. We then freeze that ovary tissue in the IVF lab at Fertility Associates, and once that person has recovered from their cancer, that's when we can look at um, replacing the tissue back into their body, um, and it's usually replaced into the abdomen or pelvis, um, and that's the procedure that we've just recently done. And then once we've done that, we need to await uh, that tissue to start functioning again, which can take a few months, um, producing hormones and then um, eggs developing within that tissue as well. Um, and then after that, patients um, may become pregnant either spontaneously or they might need some IVF medications um, to undergo egg collections. That's amazing. It's, mm. Now, do, do you, how often will you check up uh, on, on the patient? Like, how often does it, do you, particularly, I guess, Alana being the first one, how often will you check up with her just to check on these things? Yeah, so um, we'll, I'll be catching up with her in a couple of weeks just to see how she's feeling. Um, and then it does take a few months for this tissue to start working. So um, we will be doing regular blood tests. And then once we see that um, the uh, tissue is starting to function, then we'll be starting to perform some ultrasound scans to have a look at it, to have a look at um, what we call follicles, which is where the eggs grow within the um, ovary tissue. Now, this is a first-time surgery here in New Zealand, but I understand yep. you've performed this um, before several times in Australia. Yep. So yep. What, is it becoming more popular? Do you think it will happen more around New Zealand? And what, what's the success rate generally? Yeah, look, I think it's, well, it's going to become um, a more established procedure here. Um, the, the issue was is that for many, this procedure was not permitted to be performed in New Zealand, so we had to await um, a permission from the Ministry of Health to be able to perform this. This is why we haven't been able to do this before. Um, and Fertility Associates was involved with lobbying um, the government for that and, and our patients, of course, as well. Um, so now that we're now allowed to perform the procedure, I imagine we will be doing this more often. Um, and there... We have a number of patients who already have some of their ovary tissue um, frozen and they may be at some stage wanting to come back and have this procedure. And I think over time, we, I think we'll probably have more patients um, freezing um, part of their ovary as part of their um, pre-cancer care as well. Um, so I think it will increase in demand. So is is it more um, effective than, than, I guess, than all just egg collecting and IVF? Um, no, um, egg collecting is still probably... Uh, gives a better chance of a baby, but sometimes uh, before cancer treatment, a patient won't actually have time to undergo an egg collection, Um, and so, um, because we need about 10 to 14 days for that to happen, Um, but if a patient um, has less time, or sometimes we may be able to do both things um, to give them um, the opportunity to have a baby later, Um, the chance of a baby from this technique is probably around 20 to 30 percent, so it's you know, it's, it's not 100%, but yeah. um, it does give the opportunity for these people. So, Dr. Seal, how did you become interested and, in, I guess, train up to want to do this procedure? Um, so when I was um, doing my training to become a fertility specialist, I had the opportunity to work in Melbourne, um, and I was working at the Royal Women's in Melbourne, which is one of the main centres in Melbourne for um caring for um, people's fertility prior to cancer treatment. Um, For example, if somebody's having chemo or radiation or surgery that might significantly affect their fertility. And so it was a special, um, it was, we saw a lot of patients and we, um, as part of that, performed um, freezing of ovary tissue, but also um, had the opportunity to learn um, the procedure about placing it back into the, um, to women's bodies as well. Um, well, so that's sort of where what sparked my interest um, yeah. was working in that unit. 
That's incredible, and what an incredible thing thing to do. It, I mean, I guess also this might be a really dumb question. Sorry if it is. Is it a really nerve wracking procedure to to perform? Um, the procedure is very similar to other gynaecology surgeries that I okay. perform. So the procedure is um, straight straightforward from my point of view, but. Um, I guess the, the most nerve-wracking part was when um, the, the laboratory person who had carefully prepared this tissue uh, was making sure that we didn't drop it yeah. <laughs> because it's been carefully prepared and frozen for many, many years for this patient. So that was the, the most nerve-wracking part. But the surgery itself went, you know, was very straightforward. Well, Dr. Searle, thank you very much for your time uh, this morning as well about an amazing, amazing procedure there, and we'll we'll follow along with that one closely. That's uh, Dr. Lee Searle, who's just performed an incredible procedure uh, there. Um, yeah. And uh, best of luck too to Alana Scott uh, for that. Well, uh, just reviews of Jupiter. Morning and Nathan, Jupiter not visible from our place this morning, but we had a brilliant view on Sunday night using a seven-inch telescope. Saw the red spot. Oh, that's pretty cool. Although it says not so red anymore. And three of its moons uh, looking good uh, for all your mahi. Uh, Graham and Tat North, shame this Costco won't sell alcohol because it's in the Trust Monopoly area. Oh, I don't know if I want people buying a pellet of that. Uh, goodness me. Uh, Nathan, look out to the west now as Jupiter is still visible. Stephen from Hamilton, thank you uh, very much. The roles of Bodie and Doyle on Morning Report this morning are played by Guyon and Corin. From all of us here at First Tap, have yourselves a wonderful day. We'll be back in your ears, our popo.